You're listening to From the Front Lines, a special podcast from WUFT during the COVID-19 pandemic. This podcast provides weekly updates on Florida's coronavirus response with a particular focus on North Central Florida. Each week, From the Front Lines will feature community leaders and frontline workers working to reopen their communities safely during these challenging times. Hello, I'm your host, Ryan Vasquez, and this is From the Front Lines. This will be our last podcast. We hope we have been a source of information and comfort during these past four-plus months of uncertainty. We will continue to cover this pandemic at WUFT just in other formats. With that said, this last episode attempts to predict the future. Namely, what about our everyday life will be forever changed by this pandemic? Because I think one thing that a lot of people realize is we don't need people in the office all the time. And so it may help women achieve some of the flexibility that they wanted. Most major events trigger changes. Just consider how we fly around the world today compared to before 9-11. Or how building standards change in Florida after major hurricanes ravage the state. A pandemic is no different, and historically, we have some precedents. In this episode, we will look to history to inform how some changes may come about. We also talk to some businesses to see how some of their temporary changes during the pandemic may permanently stick. And lastly, we dive into the theater-going experience and ask, will we ever pack into theaters again on opening night? Eating out at a local restaurant is looking and feeling different now that businesses are adapting to the new normal. Taylor Levesque spoke to local business owners who say there are many aspects of the restaurant industry that are forever changed because of COVID-19. Jay Hula is the owner of That Bar and Table in Gainesville. He says the coronavirus has greatly affected the restaurant industry. The biggest thing is, is overcoming a dramatic shift to the business model. As he learns how to adapt to keeping his restaurant open and his employees and customers safe, he also recognizes there are many things that have changed indefinitely. It's uh, nearly impossible for us to create the same in-dining atmosphere and experience when you can only use you know, a fraction of your restaurant. We don't see, even as our bars have reopened in restaurants, we don't see people sitting shoulder to shoulder around the bar driving the great uh, cocktail revenue that we were used to. Uh, we don't see people in the dining room wanting to come in and push tables together, have big parties and celebrations of 10, 12, 20. The coronavirus has also forced indefinite changes to food trucks. Brandon Grabhorn is the owner of BZ's Gelati, which operates solely as a food truck. Beforehand, uh, I mean, food trucks were big on um, big events where there's uh, a lot of people hosted in Gainesville. We have we have tons of them, food truck rallies. It's a crazy environment, a lot of fun. But since COVID happened, obviously that's not possible. Same thing we used to do football games and stuff like that, where there'd be mass crowds of people, and that's it's not the case anymore. And for the foreseeable future. Grabhorn says they are not able to attend events, go to schools, and workplaces like normal, but have remodeled their business plan to sell gelati in local neighborhoods. Being able to do this neighborhood route, getting in touch with our customer base where they said like, hey, yeah, come up to our, our neighborhoods. It's really grown our, our brand. It's honestly been a, a true blessing because we've met people that we never would have met if we would have kept doing the same things we were doing. For Upper Crust Bakery, a storefront business, owner Ben Guzik says in the midst of all the changes, it is now a normal process for businesses to develop a new plan. It's hard to even imagine, you know, going back to a, a world that's normal, you know. Upper Crust Bakery has modified their business model to include social distancing, enhanced cleaning measures, online ordering and delivery. Technological improvement, which I think will have a long lasting effect. On the topic of technology, Hula agrees it is becoming an important addition to restaurants. 
What we're using today that we didn't use prior to COVID was just uh, contactless menus uh, via QR code. Those are relatively cheap, if not free, uh, through some providers. Again, working with our delivery service providers, it does give us a stronger online presence, the ability to do ordering via our website or via our Facebook. Other things that we'll be pursuing are uh, the the use of an application in the future. So we'll have to explore what makes sense. Are there affordable options that are still functional enough um, to you know, do what we need it to do and, and meet the standards that we, we hope we to give to our customers. In the meantime, Hula says he will do his best to accommodate customers and adapt to the changing industry. Shoulder to shoulder seating at the bar may not be around for a long time. So we'll continue to figure out how to spread people out, get as many people as we can in safely and keeping them comfortable until such point where it is deemed safe for us to go back to the old ways. And in our business, it's a, it's a weekly basis. We kind of have now begun to understand when bad news comes, we probably have about a two-day lag time before we see dramatic drops in business. Hula says restaurants are fighting to stay alive, but are continuing to do their part to serve the community and improve their services. He recommends customers to continue to come out and support local businesses. Catching a movie or seeing a play, two such acts that could make for an enjoyable date night or just a fun night out. But thanks to COVID-19, both the big screen and stage have been all but abandoned. Cameron Lund spoke with the director of the Hippodrome in Gainesville and the owner of the Ocala Drive-In to see what the prospects of a night out look like when we are all locked in. Just like everybody else, um, our, our business model has been shattered by uh, by COVID-19. Uh, our entire business model is based on bringing everyone together to have an experience together. And uh, that's, that's something that we're not, it's not a healthy thing to do right now. That was Stephanie Lingi. She is the artistic director of the Hippodrome Theater in Gainesville. The Hip has been a staple downtown for nearly 50 years and it is seeing a 50% decline in income during COVID-19. We've lost uh, over 50% of our income. Uh, we have had to um, let people go and uh, temporarily lay off many others. Um, we are figuring out and, uh, together how to create theater and do our storytelling and our outreach and our education work in a time of pandemic. Despite the lack of an in-person audience, those working at the theater are still doing what they do best, making art. The Hip had its first virtual showing of the play Souvenir, which was self-produced, pre-filmed, and shown over Zoom. Lingi says the production of that was a new experience for most everyone involved. Through Zoom rehearsal and mobile lighting kits and sound equipment, Lingi says she and company had to bring the spirit of the Hippodrome outside of its iconic four walls. We are creative people, and this is just making us be creative in a different way. We have to think outside the box. And as much as we love the Hippodrome, we have to think outside the Hippodrome right now. Um, and so and that's what we're doing in order to keep the spirit of the Hippodrome alive. The Hip, along with many other playhouses and theaters across the state, are not looking to open their doors anytime soon due to the recent trends of positive case increases. However, when a vaccine is ready, the doors will once again be open. I do hope uh, once the uh, vaccine is uh, created and starts to be disseminated, we get to the point where we can still do social distancing and masks in the audience, but it will be safer for us to start coming together. Unlike the Hippodrome, the Ocala Drive-In has the benefit of being open to in-person customers. But the owner, John Waski, says that he still has the same issues with customers not buying concessions. They don't understand that it's the concession that, that supports the drive-in theaters. And without the concession sales, the drive-ins aren't going to make it. 
And we, you know, no matter how much you try to tell people that is the concession that supports them, they still want to bring in their outside food and support the fast food place that gives them nothing. Waski has also had his own troubles finding content to put on his screens. With the major motion picture companies continuing to delay new releases in the fear of massive box office losses, Waski has been in talks with independent companies who may not have content that is suitable for all ages. You know, some of the independent studios that I don't normally uh, deal with, that they tend to uh, basically put out the horror movies and stuff like that, and my clientele are families uh, with children, and uh, so that's it's. You know, even though I'm getting a couple of new releases through them, it's not really the type of movie that my clientele likes. Waski has owned the theater for over 10 years, and his family has been in projecting in the movie business for over 100 years. He never expected something like this to impact his business. He only asked to help him and other theaters help provide the entertainment that has been so sparse for these past few months. The Providence are trying to survive, and we're trying to bring people uh, the best entertainment that we can. Uh, with what we have to work with, and we're going to great extremes to make sure, certain that our guests are safe and our staff are safe. And, uh, uh, yeah, I wish people would just realize that, you know, uh, everything that we do is at extra expense, especially the social distancing, the uh, packaging of the food, the delivery to the vehicles that we do, all that is at extra sp expense. So they need to try to help us, help them, help support us a little bit. Not bring in the outside food. They wouldn't bring in, uh, per se, that you wouldn't go to uh, Little Caesars to buy a pizza and take it into Chuck E. Cheese, would you? To view any upcoming events for the Hippodrome, visit thehip.org, or for the Ocala Drive-In, visit ocaladrivein.info. One thing that has changed for almost every adult in Florida is how we work. For those who aren't essential workers, working from home has become the new normal during the pandemic. But will the flexibility of remote work really change the workplace forever? Melissa Fato spoke with Dr. Joyce Bono, professor of management at the University of Florida's Warrington College of Business. She recently completed the first phase of a research project called Work and Family During the Time of COVID, detailing how working parents have adapted to these times. How are employers and employees, for that matter, adapting to a new era of work culture and work standards? So I think the one universal is that we're going to rethink it all. We're going to rethink things that I really care about in terms of uh, employees' quality of work life. I think we're going to think about, do people need to come to work all the time? Can we have fewer meetings? Can we have shorter meetings? Can we be more focused? Can we reduce commuting for people? Do you think that the office is dead? Is working nine to five, eight hours straight, is that going to become a, a relic of the past? It's been more than, I think, decade and a half, two decades ago, that Best Buy went to a results-only work environment where you only had to come if you were needed. You were accountable for your job, not for hours in the office. Within 90 days to six months of that being rolled out, one third of the workforce came back to the office. So I think there's a lot of people who like the structure of the office, the interactions with colleagues. Um, and so I don't think the office is going to go away. There are interviews on this research project 
we literally had people talk to us about one of them is crunched in the corner of the couch on the laptop trying to create kind of a sound barrier between their spouse who's in the little home office in the back bedroom working while a child is on remote school and a under school age child is coming in asking for juice some of the families that we talk to need the office at least for one of them at least a part of the time so i don't think they're going away but i think they can be more flexible more shared one of your research interests is women in the workplace what are you hearing from the women in your study so i'm conducting this research with dr kanjan shah who's a cardiologist at uf and our initial concern was that people would assume that the women who are at home are not working and that the men who are at home are working and that it would kind of derail careers. We don't have much sense of that when we talk to people themselves. They seem to be working it out in their households um, so that everybody gets their work done. But what we still don't know is what their employers or their supervisors think about what they're doing. But we actually think that this could have negative implications for women, but it also could have positive because I think one thing that a lot of people realize is we don't need people in the office all the time. And so it may help women achieve some of the flexibility that they wanted. I would say we're not fully complete with analysis, but our gut sense on the issue of gender is that more men are eager to be in the office full time. What is the biggest takeaway from this first phase of research? People want flexibility and companies have always interpreted flexibility as flexible policy, but policy by its very nature isn't flexible. It's alternative work, maybe it's not eight to five, but it's not flexible. This clear, clear message that came through is, we want to be fully functioning human beings who work and have families. And in order to best integrate both of those really important parts of myself, I need flexibility in my work, which means making a decision today about tomorrow, which means that the office thinks it's better if everybody's in for the 8 a.m. meeting, but that really doesn't work for me and give me a chance to join um, in the morning and see from home and see how that works for you. And so the, the story we're going to write is about the paradox of all the these families were stressed. They felt frustrated. Their technology wasn't right. Their working spaces weren't right. Their spouses and children interrupted them. They didn't always have what they needed to do their job. But that was coupled tightly with the joy of being able to be creative, having more just relaxed time where they got to think about their work, realizing tasks that just did not need to be done because nobody missed them, and then the part about being with family more flexibly. So it's not just a family story, it's a flexibility story. Historically, epidemics have transformed the public spaces we inhabit. Gabriella Paul spoke with local and national architects, city planners, and historians on how a post-pandemic world might look different. I began with a simple question. Will the coronavirus forever change how humans move through space? So now with COVID, we are certainly going to see a huge transformation in how we think about cities and architecture. 
Vandana Baveja is an associate professor at the University of Florida School of Architecture, who is currently authoring a book on the historic relationship between disease and the design of space. Let's just go back uh, a little bit before the Spanish flu and before Robert Koch established in 1882 that tuberculosis uh, was caused by a bacterium. Tuberculosis was the leading cause of death for Americans in the 19th and 20th centuries. It is also known to have inspired modernist architecture that we recognize today as being clean, bright, white, and minimalist. And doctors believe that urban indoor living with poor ventilation in densely populated area uh, led to limited air supply, which was uh, conducive to the spread of tuberculosis and other airborne diseases like bronchitis, influenza, and therefore we see in, in the history of city planning, we see this tendency towards suburbia, towards opening up of cities, towards living in lower density uh, neighborhoods. If the key to looking forward was in fact to look backward, I thought speaking with some local historians might shed light on what to expect as we live through such a historic moment in time. If you look at what happens over the course of the 19th century, um, Americans became much more focused on, on having hard lines between their domestic life and their work life. Dr. Sean Adams is the Hyatt and C.C. Brown Professor of History at UF. He specializes in American capitalism and the history of energy. I asked him how the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century restructured people's public and private space and how that can help us understand what's happening today. So, for example, one of the big uh, uh, rallying cries of one of the unions at the time, the Knights of Labor, over the course of the 19th century, was eight hours for work, eight hours for sleep, eight hours for what we, what we will. And uh, I think that physical space represented that. And that's a real change from the way things had been done for centuries beforehand. So it often happens in history that, that things are cyclical. Um, what we're now seeing is a kind of return to that. Another expert in history, UF Professor Jack Davis, weighs in on the cyclical pattern of history. Even before COVID, my sense is that we were definitely moving. Some architecture was incorporating the best of the old, you know, more natural allowing and more natural light um, and um, uh, raising the ceilings higher uh, to give a better sense of space, adding uh, at least some kind of porch to a house, a screen porch. Nostalgic, Davis predicts that architecture, especially in Florida, will return to more outdoor living. Redesigning space post-COVID will look like front decks and waving hi to neighbors passing by. I live on a corner house in the duck pond, and I built a big giant 20 by 20 deck years ago. And I sit out there on the deck sipping tequila in the evening, and people walk by, and neighbors walk by, and it's just the greatest. I just enjoy it so much. You know, you can say hi to people. What Davis is getting at here is the luxury to be in a space comfortably, be it a public space or his front porch. For the co-directors of New York-based think tank and inclusive design consultancy, Mixed Design, at the forefront of their mission is ensuring all people, regardless of race, gender, sexual orientation, ability, or religion, can navigate a public space comfortably. In other words, way before the coronavirus, they have been rethinking space. You know, part of our mission is to is really to make spaces, in particular public spaces, meet the needs of what we call non-compliant bodies. People of different ages, genders, races, abilities, and classes um, that uh, are left out of the architectural mainstream. This is Joel Sanders, founder and Yale professor of architecture. 
one of the things that we've recognized, strangely enough, that COVID-19 has made all of us, each in our own way, non-compliant bodies. In a roundtable discussion between Sanders and co-director Seb Cha, we talked about the ways in which they've both imagined recreating space since the start of the pandemic in March. We call it multi-sensory wayfinding. This is one example of a permanent solution to the impossible puzzle COVID has posed. How can people both be together and apart? Basically, to supplement traditional wayfinding or signage that directs people with using uh, things like contrasting colors, the differentiating and demarcation of zones of circuit barrier-free circulation versus places of rest. And these transition thresholds are places where everyone, okay, not only people with mobility issues, or let's say uh, the blind or people with sensory issues who have to stop and figure out where they're going, but now all of us need that opportunity to slow down be aware of our presence, be aware of where other people are, and move accordingly. Cha leaves us with this. For COVID, if we treat this just as adding hand sanitizer stations and drawing circles on the ground, it's a lost opportunity. Cha, Sanders, two local historians, and one expert on disease and design all noted, we are living through a historic time. There's opportunity in moments of crisis, however. It's yet to be seen if we will witness permanent changes to American architecture and design, like in the wake of tuberculosis, or if we'll cling to our temporary revisions of facial coverings and plexiglass windows. If how we spend our downtime and work time could be forever impacted by this pandemic, what else could be? How about travel, specifically going on a cruise? When the pandemic hit the U.S., the cruise industry all but shut down, leaving thousands without work. Anthony Montalto introduces us to two people in the cruise business who share what the pandemic has been like for them. Oren Sands is a dueling pianist performer. It's an all-request music show that combines uh, sing-along and comedy and crowd participation. He's a musician by trade and he loves it. It's, you know, it's making, it's entertaining people and making people happy. You know, what, depending on, you know, no matter what's going on in their lives, they can come out and see the show and kind of forget about that for a while and, and be entertained, which is always a great thing. Sands has worked as an independent contractor for two cruise lines during his career. But during the coronavirus pandemic, his work, like that of many others, has been greatly affected. I mean, for me personally, I'm pivoting my career. I'm taking cybersecurity course. Music industry is not going to support me anymore. He says while music will always be there for him, there's no telling when it'll be safe again to perform shows like he once did. Who knows how long a vac- it's going to be for a vaccine to, to come in, you know, to be implemented. And... And the efficacy of the vaccine, we won't know for, you know, if, if let's say they implement it, you know, they introduce it six months from now, the real efficacy of that won't be known for another at least six months. Sands says he thinks entertainment on cruise ships could look much different when cruises start shipping off again. He talks about masks for singers possibly making an appearance at shows not just on ships, but even on dry land. But while the masks may help the show go on, they could provide a different experience from what the audience is expecting. Even when a singer sings, they're not just singing, they're also, you know, they're, they have some, they have an emotion and, and they're delivering a song to somebody. They're delivering a song to the audience. And facial expressions are 
so important. He goes on to explain how some jokes just don't land right with a facial covering. When you say a line to somebody or you say a joke to somebody, a joke can be taken the wrong way if people don't see the expression on your face. So those, these are just these are these are changes that we're going to have to learn how to adapt to. And Sands says he thinks the whole cruise industry has some adaptations to make too. Just to get the cruise industry restarted is going to be a, is going to be a huge challenge to restaff the ships, bring everybody back in from their home countries and get the ships back ready to go full steam. There's the social distancing aspect on top of that. They're going to have to really figure out how to social distance people while having enough people on board to be make, make it profitable, you know? Another person in the industry shared her thoughts on reopening ships. Her name is Karen, and she's from South Florida. She wasn't comfortable sharing her information because she's afraid for her job, but she echoes much of the same thoughts Sands has. She thinks there might be more local cruise routes when passengers embark again. Not as many exotic, like, foreign to foreign, where you sometimes you get to fly to Copenhagen, or you'd fly to Greece to get on, a, and then you'd end up in Southampton. They won't probably be doing anything like that. It's going to be point A, back to point A. Karen also explains why some people might see ship engines running as they drive by the port. They're in what's called soft layup. Ships in soft layup keep the engines running in a skeleton maintenance crew. The hard layup is when they go in into like a ghost mode. And they do, they just shut the engines down and anchor. She says while soft layup may cost more money now, it's better on the ships in the long run, since shutting down completely is bad for engines. That's a suggestion that, you know, it's something that, you know, a company chose. It might have been a little more expensive to do it, but it's better in the long run to protect, you know, what you have. But while ships are still running, even if they're docked, Karen says things are still up in the air. She says there's a hope ships can shove off full of passengers by the start of South Florida's fall cruise season. But there's no guarantee. She does say with certainty, though, as soon as cruises are back up and running, she's going on one. From the Front Lines is a production of the Innovation News Center at the College of Journalism and Communications at the University of Florida. Thank you to all of our producers over the course of this cast. Taylor Levesque, Anthony Montalto, Kristen Moorhead, Daniela Mora, Melissa Fato, Gabriella Paul, Cameron Lund, and Josh Williams. Also, thanks to our fellow Florida public media stations for their contributions to this podcast. And a special thank you to Matt Abramson and Craig Lee for their work behind the scenes. Please continue to follow All Things Coronavirus on the WUFT app or at WUFT.org slash coronavirus. 